You're in for a treat with today's episode where I chat with author of Slidology, Resonate, Illuminate, and freshly published data story, Nancy Duarte. Listen up to hear about her hunt for unicorns, why bridging the chasm between exploration and explanation is good for your career, and the process that turned thousands of slides into three simple graphs. All this and more coming up next. Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Affleck. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole, and I am thrilled to be talking with Nancy Duarte today. Nancy, welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. I'm so happy to be chatting with you, Cole. Yay, me too. So, little story. I first encountered your work back in 2009, and I'll tell you how I know it was 2009 in a moment, but I was working at Google. This was in California, and I arrived at my desk one morning to find a copy of Slidology on it. And that was your first book, right? (laughs) Yeah. So Slidology was on my desk and it had a sticky note on the front. And the sticky note was from Laszlo Bach, who ran people operations at Google at that time. And the sticky note said, and I know this because I have it stuck inside the front cover of the book, uh, picked this up from an at Google talk. These are the author talks at Google and thought it might be of interest. And it was. I devoured it. And the copy is signed. Your inscription says, may the voice of inspiration and innovation be heard through the strength of your presentations in 2009. Wishing you lots of continued influence, Nancy Duarte. Now, I'm not sure that you remember writing that inscription, but you certainly have had a ton of continued influence since that point. More books, including a new one, Data Story, that was just published that we'll talk more about. And while I think many people listening probably are familiar with your work, I'm hoping that this will introduce it to some new folks as well. So to start off, you play a lot of different roles, speaker, author, CEO of Duarte Inc., wife. Your husband wrote a really loving endorsement at the beginning of your book. That was such a surprise. <laughs> Can you just tell us a bit about the personal journey that led you here? Yeah. And I'm a grandma too, which is so fun. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah it's, you know, it. um, yeah, the, the journey has been long. We've been doing this for 31 years now. My husband wow. actually started it in 88, and I thought it was stupid. I was like, that's <laughs> the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And, and he's just like, no, I think this little thing, it's called a Macintosh, and I think it's going to become a real thing. And I'm like, I think it's right. And by 1990, I was very pregnant with our second child, and I just was like, I need you to go get a real job, right? And so... Um, Goes, and no, what was the business at that point? What were you at focused on? At that point, on? he was a technical illustrator. So he figured out how to really hammer, the, the make it so the computer could do um, digital illustrations. And so, um, and he, we did what was called desktop publishing back then, because that's what it was called, because you can actually yep. print from your computer, and there's never been anything like that in history. And so I had... Um, 
he begged me like twice in our marriage, my husband begged me, like got on his knees and begged me, right? Nothing <laughs> like that to get your attention. So he got on his knees and begged me, hey, thank you, please. I, I have a vision. I actually think this is a real thing. Would you please read a Macworld magazine? And I'm like, fine, I'll read it. And I read it. And then I was like, well, look, if I can sell it, you can keep it. But if I can't sell it, your services, then, then you're getting a real job. And I had all those little resumes piled up and envelopes and everything. And so... I did. I made three calls in one afternoon to NASA and Tandem, which is now HP and Apple, and we won accounts at all three. And um, what's interesting about back then, you probably don't remember this because you weren't born then, but I was born. We, just um, the record oh, you were born. You were bitty, bitty, bitty. <laughs> is that like, if you, like when we went over to NASA, they were so excited to meet with us because they wanted to know if you could actually make charts and graphs digital. And so at the time, they used to use electric, black electrical tape and exacto knives and rub on oh, wow. to do all their charts. And then they would take a photo of it, a photo stat, it was called. And so when we walked in with these bit matte, little, cruddy little, you know, printouts from our printer, they were blown away, right? Because we didn't have all the manual labor just to put an axis in a chart or whatever. And so back then, you know, it was like being a little digital upstart or something. And so we started to win accounts, and then I worked him so hard, bless his heart, three years later, well, two and a half years later, he got carpal tunnel syndrome, and then he moved into IT and finance and you know, had to do things that were less tight. He was happy as a clown, though, to get out of the, the work, but he just kind of let me turn it into my dream. Having won Apple is one of the first accounts, you know, a lot of people don't know, they were the first company ever to hook up a uh, a conference at scale where the computers were hooked up to a projector. Before then, all conferences were 35 millimeter slides. And so here was this company who was super progressive at that, and we were doing all their slides for their um, developers conference. And um, 92 was the, one of the best things that happened was Apple had a huge layoff. That was 93. They had a huge layoff. And that was fantastic for us because they all bounced out like beautiful seeds planted themselves in new companies all over the valley. And that was a real flashpoint for our business. That's our early history. <laughs> yeah. And if we fast forward to more recent times, tell us about Duarte Inc. today. Yeah. So we, we, um, we still stick to our knitting. We definitely are a communications firm. We work with the highest performing brands in the world. And what we do is we help executives and brands help them communicate by helping write or produce or create their talks, or we will teach you how to write and produce and create and deliver your own talk. So we either are creative services to help you be great, or we teach you all the stuff that we've learned from these great high performing brands. And we have a whole training business and um, we have about 120 people split between here in New York and some scattered across the country. Yeah, you just opened that New York office, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have 10 people there. I kept awesome. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, I kept, I used to hear stories of other friends of mine in agencies like, oh, never open a second office. And I probably never should have listened to them because we actually have been a second office for about three years. I just kept pretending we weren't. So, yeah, we decided to tell the world that we're there because we already have 10 people. And if that's not an office, I don't know what is. But I just was worried about. I don't know, just having to split my time between coasts, but it's been really fun. My husband and I go twice a year and we, um, the team there is so special and um, right now it's not hard. So ask me again in a couple of years. And how do you <laughs> split who does what across the different offices? 
Oh, that's a good question. So what we we've had clients there for a long time, and then it's we didn't want to be like, hi, you have a whole new team working on your stuff. So we've been moving talent slowly to for the local talent to work on the local brands. Our work is still heavily weighted um, West Coast because that's just where we've been forever. Yeah. So um, I must say probably three of the people in the New York office do tend to work more California time frame, but we're moving all the accounts over there just as we can build the team there. That makes sense. I'm curious in the split of work, you talk about making presentations, but then also the training side, right? And teaching people mm-hmm. how to make their own. What's the what's the rough split between how much energy or time goes into each of those sides? What's interesting is revenue-wise, it's about two-thirds services, one-third training. That the amount of energy it takes to do a creative process and, and how hard it is to get talent that can go toe to toe with the top CEOs in the world. Yeah. You know, it's like that's, they're unicorns. So that side's harder to scale, and the talent is just, you know, we're picky. So there's just more moving parts and more nuance to the creative side, whereas the training side is just growing rapidly. And it's, I'm not saying it's frictionless, but it's a lot less friction to run a training business than it is a creative one. But where the ideas and the insights come for the training business is we codify it from the creative work we do. So I'll never not have both. Um, so we we really track and, and observe almost ourselves doing what we're doing. And then we say, is this something we could teach the world? And then we turn that into training. Yeah, such a great model. And th- these unicorns, how do you find them? What are the special skills <laughs> that they possess? <laughs> Well, you know what? We we did get an interesting tool. We got only we only paid it for six months because we also we too were on a unicorn hunt, and it's actually um, talent insights from LinkedIn. You know, as a medium-sized business, some days I hate LinkedIn, right? Because then all of a sudden everyone knows who your great talent is. But they created this other tool called Talent Insights, where I can actually put a profile in, like where are the great salespeople, where are the great creative people, and I can hit any geo of any any place and it'll say like oh there's high concentration up here but it might surprise you that these other two cities way over there in the same state are hot pockets for that same skill or whatever so it's kind of been interesting to map you know you're such a data geek too it's been fun to use data to try to see and we did figure out that there's four times more creative people in manhattan than there are in the entire bay area including San Francisco, like all of Silicon Valley, San Francisco combined and Oakland, like the whole Bay Area. And so that was good, right? So now that's like, oh, that makes sense. That's how we could scale so quickly in New York because there's the pool it's so much bigger. So we're trying to be really intentional. I need some, you know, it's expensive in the Bay Area. So I need to, you know, figure out where to run ops and, you know, it's just a whole lot of things I'm trying to do. And so we have that tool for about two more months of <laughs> scrambling to try to really study it and figure out how to fill some of the gaps. And if I find a high concentration of unicorns, I will only let you know and know. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so I'm curious just in scale, right? You mentioned 120 people, but how many presentations does your team or your organization do in, in a month or a year? What's funny is I, I didn't ever want to anticipate that number because I do, you know, rubber numbers. I'm like, yeah, I don't know, plus or minus 50% is still a pretty accurate number, right? That's how it used to be before I wrote data. But um, what, what it, 
I used I would guess, right? I would have said, well, based on this many years, this many jobs we have open, this many this that. So I had my president do the numbers, and he's this totally believable, thoughtful, careful, very accurate guy. And in 2011, he did the math, which was how many years ago is that now? My God, I'm getting so old. Yeah, eight, eight years, years ago, he calculated that we'd done 250,000 presentations, and that didn't even include all the wow. So when you do a presentation, especially for an executive, you build it, and then they have an epiphany, and then you cut half of it, you rebuild it again, and then they have an epiphany, and then they're like, mm, I don't want to have it be race cards anymore. I think I'm into archery or whatever. And they're like, oh, my God. And then you build it again and again and again, and then the day of the actual event, they have an epiphany in the shower. And next thing you know, you scrap everything you did and you build it again. So he didn't even count that. He didn't even count the fact that on one project, we might have, like, we literally count revs and some of our projects get into the 30s of rev revisions. Um, and so we just, he did the math back then and I just decided to just keep using his number of 250,000 because it just seems exorbitant. Nobody believes me that it would be higher, but it's God only knows how much it is now. Well, right. Um, if that was 2011, let's go back to though these revisions, right? How do you how do you keep your team motivated through that sort of cycle? So I think that's a common misperception is that there are magical things that you could do, or if people were doing it right, that it would cut that down to no iterating, which is probably not the right place for it to be. But how do you keep people motivated through that process? You know, I think um, in the interview process, we try to figure out how attached they get to their work. Like, you have to realize that we're not in fine art. Like, fine art, you can paint whatever you want, put it up, let people judge it. It just doesn't matter, right? If you loved it, you loved making it, you're a fine artist, you're in it for the art form, and you're in it for no one but yourself and your beloved followers, whatever. When you're a commercial artist, you're in service of a customer, and I think sometimes people are like, oh, I didn't get to do the most beautiful work today, right? So I, I, I have really great creative directors, and they're like, you know what? About five, maybe eight times a year, you will feel like, what? I got to do. The client believed me and really believed that I knew what's best for their brand, you know, and then we got to do it the way we felt was the best way to communicate the message. So we start there usually. They get to do this, like, what? is incredible work. And then from there, the client just paper cuts it to death usually. And um, and so they kind of do it for the hope of knowing that, that you know, at some point during the year, someone will be like, you know what, I defer to you. I, I just defer to you as the expert. And um, that happens. I'm, I'm minimizing how often that happens, but it is hard. They have to have thick skin and be tough and, and be iterative and do, um, like I was listening to one of your podcasts this week, people out of Italy where they do low fidelity, right? You do quick, you do iterative, you do yeah. low fidelity um, work. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of our customers don't work that way. We work that way internally. But if we sent something like, well, here's a rough sketch and we'll composite these images for you, they'll be like, sorry, I, I just can't see it. You're going to have to actually make that thing for me. So I just can't yeah. imagine what you're trying to tell me, right? But at Disneyland and Pixar, I mean, they can work off of storyboards, but they're creative. And so there is this weird gap between creatives using a creative process and um, your customers who are in, you know, whose primary language is business. And so I think my team, one of the things that when you're working with these brands, if the team and the members of the team are actually reading the content, you, you have the equivalent of about an MBA in two years. 
because my team, they get whip smart about all kinds of business terms and concepts and, yep. and it helps them, it helps them in life and in business to not just, well, I'll just pretty this up. If they think through it and reconceptualize and redraw it, make it into diagrams. You have to understand the relationships and the content to be able to turn it into a diagram. And they do all those things in a really great way. So you're creating your own sort of unicorns, it sounds like, too. Mm-hmm. So let's shift gears and talk about your new book, Data Story. Tell me about it. What's it about? Who's it for? What, what caused you to write it? Yeah, you know, we I kept, so we have been doing these workshops for a while, and the workshops had been based on the content side, based mostly on Resonate. And I kept getting feedback, and they're like, no, this is great and all, but I don't speak on a stage very often. Can you just study normal people? Like, I'm not, I didn't understand the question. I'm like, mm-hmm. normal people? I'm not going to study normal people. I'm just going to study excellent people, right? I'm not going to, you know, why would I? <laughs> and what they were really saying is, can you create a course that I could use in my day-to-day life, right? I don't necessarily stand and deliver talks all the time. And and that people really wanted to have a course for analytical roles. So that was the hypothesis was, what, what do we do? And then I started to think, well, what they really need is a visualizing charts book. They need a visualizing charts and it's like well that's so much of that your course is amazing your skits into communicating too there's other courses out there i was like well that feels like that. that's not i mean those courses are filling and somebody else is already filling that and so in the process on the way of kind of trying to figure out our own stance on data i had a gal that was in helping me and she goes you know we could go this direction but there's nothing uniquely to work to hear i don't I don't see Dorita here, you know, I don't see it. I don't see the magic. And I was like, that totally made me pause because I was in, I thought it was a year in at that point. I took pause and I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? I so you're, w- let me just pa- stop you there. You're a year into writing it and realizing maybe it's not the book you want to write? Uh, I wasn't even, so this was different actually. This time I did a keynote and then a course and then a book. Normally, I write a book and then a keynote and then a course. Okay. So I did the keynote to see if it resonated first. Well, this is the journey before I even wrote the keynote. I tell you, what happened was this gal was like, where's the Duarte magic? And I'm like, holy cow. So what I did is I went to our servers. We, we have the honor and privilege and humble to work with the highest performing brands in the world. So I took the top brands in six different verticals pulled slides out that just had data on them, just data, 2,000 of them. And I pasted them on my wall and I categorized them. And I looked not at just the chart. So are you physically, you're printing these out and trees. I give back. (laughs) No, I love the tactile, low-tech approach though. There were five across and four up on 11 by 17. I have a huge, huge glass wall. I just pasted them up and saw, saw visual patterns right away. And saw parts of speech almost immediately. Like, what are the, what's the noun? What's the verb? Mm-hmm. Well, started to really look and analyze what was going on. And that was when I realized this is where the Duarte magic is. I st- just felt like, why didn't I think of this after a year? So I had some early uh, conceptual insights. And I keynoted that just once to a very, to the top brand in the world. Um, and it was their retail analytics team. And there are 200 people in the audience and they were like popping up like popcorn, like, oh my, like, oh my, why did, why isn't this been available to us? 
I've been doing this for 20 years, I've never seen anything like it. Like, so it's good, that kind of like reaction is what you want. Sure. So I keynoted it once, built the course, and then and then wrote the book. And um, it was it's it's a it's a beautiful journey. It's been an interesting journey. Because you know, even my creative director, she spends about 20% of her time in data. It drives her nuts, but she has to do it, right? In every role, even a creative director at a services firm is in data a lot more than we were even just five years ago. And it's just impacting everybody. So I'm curious, if, if we go back to that scene in your office where you've got these you know, 2,000 graphs and slides taped up to your, stuck on your glass wall, yeah. was there anything, I, I imagine it reinforced some things you already recognized and believed to be true, but did anything unexpected come out of that process? Yeah, I I wasn't expecting to be emotional. That sounds funny. I I felt this gushing affection for my team when I saw the work they did. Like I'm a pattern finder, and so mm-hmm. to put it up there and see a pattern almost immediately that nobody here knew they did. Now you could say like a like a science a, you know research scientist may say, well, of course your team's behaving that way. They all know each other and they work in proximity to each other. But I was like, no way could could this team have solved this thing like this team did, but it was different than that team. And it was so amazing. And so what's cool is even though I did all the heavy lifting, when everyone saw the book, they were like, they could see their work in it. They sure, it felt them. like them probably, right? Yeah, it felt very familiar to them, even though I think they were like, wait, wait, you know, we, we have so much respect for the people who build charts in R, and they are work for the Guardian, and, you know, I always have a lot of respect for the Tableau experts, like just, you know, reverential respect, because we tend to be the ones that put a table into PowerPoint or whatever, <laughs> sure. and so we were like, wait, 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 would a book about data from us have any credibility? Well, I don't talk about exploring or plotting or any of that I, that's to me that's what they are experts in the people reading these books are already experts in exploring the data and maybe even synthesizing it and plotting it but they're not experts in communicating it and that's where it felt really comfortable for me to stay in the communication lane and really explain how the highest performing brands communicate their data well, and, and let's talk about this distinction a little bit more, this exploring versus explaining. Uh, mm-hmm. In the book, you draw a, a very clear distinction here. And this is, a, I always make a distinction here as well, but the way that we characterize it uh, is different. And so I typically frame it as, you know, exploring, explaining, these are different steps of the process that anyone analyzing data should be undertaking. Mm-hmm. But you frame it differently. You frame it as moving from exploring to explaining is a career advantage and something that people can do to help them progress into leadership roles. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, yeah. And you're right. I think a good analyst doesn't just explore, they do explain. But what happens, at least it's happened to me twice now, which, you know, as I try to hire my own kind of data people, is some of them just flick a chart. They're just like chart flippers. And they're like, this is about my pay rate. I'm not going to tell you what I see in here, right? There's this kind of like, and the people who hold the data hold a lot of power. And yet, um, there's an example in the book where I was like, well, I don't need to see this bubble chart anymore. I tell my guy, I said, could you, I wanted to test and see, could he be an explainer of the data? And I said, I want you to do whatever you need to do to tell me the insight in this month's bubble chart. And he came back with a bar chart and he came back yeah. with a <laughs> and he came back explaining it. And I thought, where's that guy been? Like, where's that guy been? Right? Yeah. And 
I, I know they know what we need to monitor our business and have a dashboard, but the ability to codify what you find there and explain it in a way that people can take action is a different skill set. So if you think about data, you're going into it for one of two reasons, or you might as well not collect it really. It's to identify a problem or identify an opportunity. Once you've identified the problem or the opportunity, it becomes a communication situation. Because then to address the problem or to address the opportunity, someone needs to take action. So the explaining part, as I frame it, is explaining the action that needs to be taken so you can change your future data. And so that's the explainer. And you introduced this idea of the data point of view. Can you talk briefly about what that is and why it's important? Yeah. So once you've Decide once you've identified the problem or the opportunity, you need to form a point of view about it. And I think this is the big chasm. This is the career chasm because some people, and we see it in our workshops, and you do too. I'm sure it's like, uh, no, the data speaks for itself. It does not need a storyteller, right? The data, no, it speaks for itself. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make a claim about the data. It speaks for itself. And yeah. so that's so funny. Like, like you're right, it speaks for itself. But, you know, it, it does speak for itself, but it's not going to take the findings and do anything about it. So that when you go into the data, you're looking for an opportunity or a problem. And once you've found that problem, you need to form a point of view of what to do about the problem. And this is quite a bit where this kind of um, career threshold we were talking about happens. Because a lot of people were like, well, I don't want to tell people what to do about the data. I just want to tell them what the data says. So it is where you move from being an individual contributor to becoming a trusted advisor. Because if you cruise through the data, you create the synthesis, you create an insight, you form a point of view, and you say, I think if we do, if we get people to do this verb or take this action, we will change our future data the direction we want it to go. So that's a little bit of a different analysis, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. uh, that needs to be happening. It's more like creative analysis, really, about the direction you need to go. So a point of view, a data point of view, has the same components to it as the big idea I had in uh, Resonate. It has, um, what is your point of view? But it has to have a verb. Your verb has to have, in, in a data point of view, it has to have a verb. What is it that the people need to do? And then what's at stake if they don't do it? So it's got two components. My point of view is that people need to take this action. And if they do or they don't, this is what this is what's at stake. And so that's kind of the lockup of a data point of view. Okay. And you had some interesting uh, distinctions between or content on the different uses of language when uh, people are using data versus not as well. I thought that was super interesting. It, you know, The kind of verbs that people use with data are different than it might be when they're talking about something else. Can you talk more about that, please? Yeah, that was interesting. So once I, um, I love, like I said, finding patterns, and once I found the pattern for the verbs, we pulled out all the verbs from all the data sites that we could have. And I, I put them into four categories and then I gave it to one of my content people and she goes, oh, no, no, no. This is a gal who was a data analyst. She goes, oh my God, it's, I've never looked at it this way, but I used to say all the time, is it a performance verb or is it a process verb? Is it a performance verb or a process verb? So she could take my classification of four types of verbs and then she collapsed them into performance and process verbs. And I was like, that's so interesting. So a performance verb is a lot of times things executives care about things that you can actually build a KPI around, like disrupt a market or whatever, like big verbs. Whereas a performance verb might be all the smaller steps you take to complete a bigger KPI. And they are more related to process. And in some ways, 
a data geek, so you would know. A process verb is more binary. It's either done or it's not. You put it on the timeline and you cross it or not. Whereas the other bigger performance verbs are more like bigger initiatives. So it was really interesting. So it's like if, if you think about verbs, sometimes they're subverbs. Like I think the example I used in the book is like to run. To run is a verb. And so you run. But to run, you're doing multiple verbs. Your, your lungs are breathing in and out. Your arms are pumping. Your legs are pumping. You're doing multiple verbs to achieve that one verb of to run. And so it's a bit like that. Like the performance verb is to run. And the process verbs are all the other microverbs you're doing to reach that performance verb of running. Is there one of those that lends itself better to story, would you say? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't think so. I think your um, data point of view could be something like um, something simple, like, um, therefore, we should swap out our copier because nobody's using data shows no one's using it anymore. And we should reduce down to one copy machine. That's that is a data point of view, right? I hey, the data shows we're not using this copier, let's remove it. That's like super pedantic though. Like, Or it could say, the data is showing we should move into this huge market and shut down our big old facility out in wherever, right? That, that's a huge insight yep. from data. But, you know, they're both, they're both, they both may require a story. What if the copier you're proposing to eliminate is right by the office manager's office, right? <laughs> because <laughs> the persuasive thing. Or the CEO's office is where the printer's going to be made. I mean, yeah. you know, any moment yeah. it could be anything from data, the action to be taken might be a challenge that you might not be expecting. Well, and so speaking of that CEO, right, because I've encountered situations, and I'm sure others have too, where a leader comes to you wanting data, but already having their story in mind. So do you have any advice mm -hmm. for when yeah. you're the person putting date together the data, and you've formed your data point of view, but it doesn't actually support the point of view that the leader wants to see? Yeah, I just, I would, I would, I would really struggle to work for a leader like that. So, I mean, in a way you're talking about confirmation bias, right? Where, sure. where, so I think in a way dashboards are that in a way, right? I'm going to run this data every day, every hour, every week and confirm that we are headed the right direction. In a way, that's like a low grade version of confirmation bias in a way. If, if, if you are an exec and you're like, Hey, could you, could you check this out? I think I'm right. Could you just, if the executive says this, could you go to this finite subset of this subset of subset yeah, of yeah. and go um, and ignore everything else? And no matter if I'm, a, I don't, I'm not that leader. I mean, I have a hunch and I'm like, I have a hunch. Could you go confirm my hunch? That doesn't mean eliminate every other possible hunch that could be true or something I may not have thought to examine. Like, I'm not that kind of leader. Now, maybe somewhere else people work for a leader like that. I would rather know the whole story. So one of the things I say in here, whether you're looking at data for yourself or you're looking at data for a leader, play your own skeptic. Go back and see if you find a data set that disproves what you went in trying to prove. Because I, I I had a whole piece written on bias and I'm excited about it, but I cut it from the book because what you're the phase you're talking about a bit is pre-data exploration, right? Yeah. And so it's before you explore data is another opportunity for communication, right? It's a communication between two people. A person is going to ask another person to go in and explore the data. So I came up with a really cool model for that moment, but then it kind of muddied, wait, 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 you know, because I'm leaving exploring on the table and we don't even talk about exploring data. My assumption is 
you are an explorer of data, and I'm not going to get into teaching you how to do that because there's volumes written about that. But there is a moment of a potential communication breakdown at exactly the things you're talking about. And so there, there's ways to ask the right kind of clarifying questions in that moment. So number one, they don't approach it with bias. And number two, you don't feel ugly. You don't feel gross after you've gone to do it. And I think enough of us have enough integrity, you know, to not to not behave in a way that would hurt uh, uh, hurt people from the outcome of a data search like that. Well, and you included a, a good reference to, and I think a quote from Marissa Mayer in the book, where it, w- it was along the lines of, you know, the data may say one thing, I want to know the data, I, I want to know the data really well, but I may decide to do something differently mm-hmm. still in light of that, right? I, I'll use my gut mm-hmm. to make the decision, which I thought was a really interesting... Um, I love her. Like, she's pretty renowned as being just a data geek. Like, she'll look at data. When she was at Yahoo, she looked at the data and was like, wait, we have a, this big of a remote workforce and nobody is VPNing in. Back then when you had VPN, she goes, yeah. how are they working if they're all remote, but nobody's connecting to our actual systems here, right? And she just looked at the data and was like, no more remote work. Well, she could have communicated that differently, right? She could have, yeah, right? So, but it was true um, that I, I think as leaders, some of the, this is why I think, um, AI will never replace the data explainer. It could replace the data explorer to an extent, but an explainer has to match the data with their intuition and gut. And I don't think a robot will ever be able to do that. And so I think intuition, as you become a stronger and stronger leader, intuition plays a stronger part. And um, for me, the best business decision I made ever, the data would never have said to do that. And that was when, like, the economy was collapsing in 2000, before you were born, I know, but no, the economy was collapsing, and we had four services. We did print, web, uh, presentations, and multimedia. The economy's crashing because of the crap, because of the um, bubble. Our our company constricted by 30% overnight, and I decided to close three out of those four services. The data never would have said to do that. The data would have said to leave them all open so you could recover quicker. But I didn't. And it rocked our world, changed our whole company into who we are today. But the data never would have told me to do that. Right, which is interesting then when you think from the standpoint of the people working with data, right, and how to guide them or give advice for encountering some of these situations and dealing with some of these situations. One situation that uh, I think commonly people are dealing with, because we get a lot of questions on it, uh, is when people are pushing back on the idea of story and data used together. Now, you have an entire chapter in your book called Storytelling with Data. Clearly, I'm bought in on the importance of this. But how do you connect with an audience, right? maybe a more technically oriented group who's pushing back on the idea of story? Right, Coming back to this idea you mentioned before, they, they think that data should speak for itself or you, know, you can twist data to tell whatever story you want. What advice would you give to someone who needs to build acceptance within their organization for best practices in yeah. data storytelling? Yeah, sometimes I have to launch straight into, you know, when I say the word story, I am not talking about wives' tales and fiction and lies and made-up things, right? It defines story as a construct that that humans have had for thousands of years. And now that we can hook up fMRI machines to the human brain, we can actually see how the brain fires when a story is being told. And there is no other communication device that makes the brain fire that way. So why would we not use the construct story to communicate knowing 
that it is a way that people remember and recall and can repeat something that you've communicated when it's used in the structure of a story. And so I think the, the big confusion is around how it's story defined, and then they calm down. And it has been really fun to watch all the brain science coming out over time about how powerful a story is. And when should people try to tell a story with data, and when should they not? When should they not? Um, so, you know, of course, my answer would be, well, they should always tell a story with data. <laughs> um, nobody's ever asked me when they should not. Um, I don't think there always has to be narrative associated with the chart. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. like, yeah. It could be plainly self-evident that, I don't know, I'm trying to think. I, I'm i trying to think about when it doesn't need to be accompanied with narrative. I mean, I think sometimes it's a chart. I mean, can you imagine the time where, where uh, let's talk about like an, empl- uh, an employee meeting and a, and a chart just gets put up there. Do you think everyone would get up and leave that room and know exactly what to do because of that chart? Mm, maybe no that's when the the story and the narrative comes in right yeah so I was trying to think of well maybe it's going back to you know some of these things you've brought up before if it's a a dashboard monitoring KPIs and the signal is everything looks okay right probably don't need to try to turn that into any sort of a story right yeah yeah but I think then there is no I think what's interesting about KPIs let's say my my own exec team has KPIs they come in there is narrative Right, they they track it in the tracker, and we have this whole thing. But sometimes something's of interest, and most of the time, KPIs are built on how humans are behaving. We have a this is hysterical, right? We for, we have we have had a freaking data integrity initiative. Pretty much nobody in the company gets their hundred percent of their bonus this year if their data wasn't clean. Because <laughs> hmm. you can like data's only as good, right? It's like how are we supposed to know if people aren't putting the right project data in it? They're not putting the budget into the project system, you know, and we have this whole, whole goal. So that's one of our KPIs this year. Well, there's human behavior associated with completing that KPI that, you know, we have to change the humans and the human art. And so it's kind of interesting that it's really hard to even report in a KPI without doing a little bit of narrative around what's happening yeah. and why. Yeah. Data literacy is a growing area of interest and awareness. In the book, there's one point where there's a page and an image of a number of graphs. And on the left-hand side, where the bulk of the graphs are, it's titled, Use These Charts to Explore. And on the right-hand side, the title is Use These Charts to Explain. And there are exactly three graphs there. There's a bar graph, a line graph, and a pie chart. So Curious in your view, when is it a presenter's job to adapt to the literacy levels of the audience, right? Yeah. Stick with the bar, the line, the pie. And when should we be educating and working to make our audience more literate when it comes to the ways that data can be presented and interpreted? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, that was one of the things I said in, you know, you're right. You have a lot of insights in your book. And so I approached, when I dug into my uh, client work, my premise was, oh my God, I am going to make the mother of all chart choosers, the mother of all chart choosers, right? It's going to be like, oh, and, and use this complicated chart when you're trying to communicate that. Like I thought I would map out the whole world. <laughs> and 
And when I really dug in and I was like, oh my God, the top performing brands really only ever use these three chart types. And that was disappointing to me. First I thought, God, that's so disappointing. And then I thought, actually, that's kind of profound that when you really, really, really need everyone in a room to understand it, you better make it very clear by using these three chart types and annotating it. Now, pie chart could also be waterfall chart, but it's parts of a whole. So I, um, so everyone can understand that. A broad audience can, can use that because it's part of everyone's lexicon. And it's very clear on a bar chart to see the quantity and on a line chart to see the trend, right? It's just super clear. What also, though, is stated in here, though, less dominantly, is if you are in an industry like you're in engineering or you're in cancer research and there's some crazy logarithmic chart that everyone uses and you're talking at a biotech conference and that is visual shorthand for everyone in the room absolutely like as long as it's visual shorthand for the entire audience use yeah. it but if you're it's different to be talking at a biotech conference about curing cancer the minute you go and walk into a room of women that are dealing with breast cancer you would never use this logarithmic complicated thing to give them hope that the cure is close like you just yeah. wouldn't and so you just have to really know your audience and know the complexity. So this is really written to uh, how do you drive organizational decision-making in a way that it's very clear to everyone what you need to do. And the best way to do that is a bar, a pie, and a line. And, and at first it was disappointing, but then I thought, God, that's actually starting to feel kind of profound. Is, God, it feels like all the time you see it, too. There's just new ways to plot all this deep data, thick data, crazy data, IoT data. Like there's just going to become the case even plot things that we haven't dreamed of yet. But when it comes to communicating, you need to be clear. You need to prove clarity. You need to show clarity over like cleverness, you know? Yes. Well, and it reinforces a point that I think comes out clearly across all of your books, which is that audience is key to all of this, right? If we can do things in a way that works for our audience, then that will create a successful scenario. Yeah, it really is about audience empathy. So you have been an inspiration to me since I first discovered your work back in 2009. And part of the reason for that is because you've turned your passion into a wildly successful career. Right? CEO of a prominent Silicon Valley company. You've given TED Talks, written multiple successful books. How do you stay sane and balance all of this? I think one of the best things I ever did was get myself a really good assistant. And her job is to protect my calendar, protect it at all costs. And so I tend to calendar out the things that energize me, the people that energize me. And she knows, like, if I had booked time with this or that person, it's like, you don't, you don't move it for anything. I will, she'll clear my calendar for an internal conversation with an employee if they think it's important. And so, so people are like, oh, you're so busy because it could take up to six weeks to get on my calendar. It's not that I'm busy, it's that I'm protected. So every Saturday, every Sunday, I get to spend it how I want, like, you know, I, I just, I feel like paced in that way. Now, being a CEO, it's hard. I think it consumes all my waking hours. I think it's my, my children, my husband, my grandkids, and my company. I mean, it consumes me. Because yeah. as a leader of a company, you, you, I have 120 lives. Their paychecks are dependent on the business decisions I make. And I don't take that lightly. So I obsess about the future. My mind is constantly, okay, if I make this, it's like war games. I don't, I don't like calling it war games, but it's like in my head, it's like scenarios, scenarios. If I make, if I make this move, what's the con? If I do that, what's the con? What if this happens? What's the con? Like I'm always constantly thinking what's going to create the best and highest use of my employees, the best and highest use of our future as a company. And so because I'm off 
in the clouds a lot. I learned early on I needed somebody else to have their head in my toilet. I had a housekeeper. Like any way I can build and buy time, I do it. If I could leverage my time, yep. get time back. So I'm spending my time doing heist and that's you it's good. So I had um I haven't been an operational leader here for a while. I had a really beloved president. And then once it got really operational, I brought in an operational president. I stepped in back in operationally about 18 months ago because I wanted to figure out if I could figure out how to make it scale. So I've only been back in operationally for a bit. And I wrote data story at the same time. I It could drive me nuts. Oh my gosh, nuts. Like I'm in briefings with IT about security. I'm, and I'm like, is this my highest and best use? But I know every little grub worm under every little rock. And I, yep. I see now so clearly not only why we didn't scale, but how if we had scaled, we needed better and stronger proper infrastructure things in, right? And so I'm going, this year has been hard. It's been, had its challenges, but it's been also, I'm killing it. Like, I don't like, love this role, but I'm killing it right now. <laughs> and so it's just, there's seasons. There's seasons that feel more like seasons of rest and seasons that feel more like a leader of a movement, and seasons that make feel like I'm leading a revolt. <laughs> and so yeah. it, just, it just takes different kinds of energy every day when you get up. And- well, and it sounds like that thinking ahead, thinking to the opportunities, that mm-hmm. that is something that energizes you. Is, is that fair that you draw it? Yeah. yeah, it really does. I like, I'm a way maker. My VP of HR calls me a snowplow, right? We make a way. We just go ahead where, where it's harder and make a way for others. And I, I love that metaphor. Though I do think people get snow hurled at them accidentally and get buried in my process sometimes. But um, yeah, usually usually it's in service of being a way maker. And what's your process for getting people on board or, you know, uncovering them from the snow, if you will? <laughs> yeah, it's never been a fatal wound of being struck by me. <laughs> I, think, um, I think the more people understand my heart and intention, the more they're like, oh, isn't that funny? Got hit by snow. You know, people take it more like that and are resilient. Other people just can never get over it. And um, so a lot of people love being in a business where it's the leader in the industry and they get to invent. And for others, they'd rather just come in every day and everything be status quo. And maybe it only kind of changes a little bit every five years. But that's not this company, right? We're we're on the go. We're trying to stay ahead. We work with the top, I mean, top companies and top brands in the world. And you can't just rest on your laurel that way so um yeah we don't rest on our laurel so i think people that work here tend to be inventive and but also like to have a place where they belong and i think the strength of the sense of belonging that's created here outweighs how much you get hit by snowballs maybe accidentally yeah yeah so you've you've uh, they've got some you've got some leeway for some of that because of the relationships yeah so you talked about having your assistant be very protective of your calendar. Do you have any curious habits or rituals that help you be at your best or help you be more efficient? Yeah, I used to think my highest creative time was between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., but that, that was when my kids were little, and that's the only time I had, you know, away from the office to get deep work done. And then I figured out that I'm actually a morning person. So I get up mm. and my best, best thinking and my best writing in the morning until I get stuck and then I go on a walk and sometimes that walk gets me unstuck and if it doesn't I'll just carry on with the email all day or whatever else I have to do but the other thing I found out 
is that if I take a small nap, like I could do these power naps, I wake up again, my brain and body is all refreshed again. It thinks it's morning mm. and I can do my great writing again. So oh, it's kind of funny. Yeah, I just like, I could do these little power naps. I'll be like, mm-hmm. and then I even serve coffee. And then I just go right back to um, thinking it's morning, letting my brain think it's morning again. But um, I do all kinds of things to save time. I am, And there's a bunch of them even in, in the book. I do obviously yeah. calls on the commute and, um, you know, listen to podcasts while I walk. But I, I also have times where there's just no noise. Where it's just me and nature doing hikes and just hike hard until my brain shuts off and just stops thinking. Um, and that's a hard thing to get to. It's a hard place for me to get to, but I have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I do have one more question and it's sure. a selfish one. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm building storytelling with data. We are currently a team of six, uh, which feels big to me, but is clearly very tiny <laughs> compared to where you are with Duarte. But if you think back to when your team had just a handful of people what advice would you give yourself? What do you know now that you wish you'd known then? Oh, that's such a great question because six people was hard, but when we hit about 30, it was like way hard. And people always said, oh, hire people smarter than yourself. And I thought, well, that's a weird balance, right? Because at, at six people, I we weren't making enough to hire people smarter than myself. Right? It was like, wait, we're not making enough. I'd love to hire that person, but I have to pay them twice what I make for them to be smarter than myself. So there was this weird... I feel like I hired people smarter than myself later than I should have. Hmm. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that you always, I don't know, I felt like I was always afraid, uh, even though it was a feast, like the work kept coming in and coming in. I kept thinking, oh, I have to take it all because any minute it could just stop. Hmm. And so I think that scarcity mindset, you just have to always get rid of and just keep your hand to the plow, just knowing that when you do beautiful work, like what you've done, that the phone, the referrals will keep happening, that the, the there's a big, you're solving a huge problem that a lot of people need and just not get into the scarce mindset, but make big bets and make some of those big bets. Make big bets. I like it. Uh, any final thoughts you'd like to leave listeners with today? Well, one big one is everyone that's listening to you should go to your course because it is fantastic. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> that. One. And then um, the other is, is I, I, I do think that we are, you know, eventually we'll come to some sort of data crisis. And I do think because it's just too much of it. And, and I think that um, those who know how to communicate it well will win. So I really encourage everyone to to really dig in into your work, my work, you know, other work that's out there and really become a student of how to communicate it well and it'll really help. That's an awesome sentiment to wrap things up. Nancy, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Of course, you're a doll. I love your work. And to everyone listening, be sure to check out Nancy's new book, Data Story. And thanks very much for tuning in.